It's the AltaCast. I did not prepare the music. I'm sorry if you're listening. You were listening to Pop Off Radio uh, Bear Tease. Awesome Tuesday nights. And sadly today we have no Latoya. She says she's going to call in. That would be amazing because boy does it suck to do this by myself. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to take you guys through the news today. We're going to start out with a little bit of our buddy, Kope, the Japanese Bjork. Yeah. You are turned into the right frequency. This is MutinyRadio.fm. This is the AltaCast. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin. Thanks for joining us. Me. Again, there's no Latoya, the Sheriff of Truth today. Unless she calls in, which would be amazing. I've been obsessed with Japanese culture for a while now. And... There we go. I've been watching Japanese Style Originator on Netflix. If you want to not feel badly about watching TV, may I suggest watching Netflix that you don't understand with subtitles, because then it feels like you're reading. There we go. All right. Welcome to the AltaCast, everybody. Thanks for being here. Scary stuff's happening in the news. I know we know about it. To time state, to time stamp us. Today is the 24th of July, 2019. We are all still alive. No wars happened yet. Um, war on drugs. <laughs> war on drugs. Sure, I do everything on drugs anyway. So war. Let's get it done. Uh, a little scary, though, that the um, what's been going on with Iran and big words from a, a little man. Military strike on Iran. Trump is reluctant to do it, despite a history of threats. Well, thank God. Can we not? Can we not get in a war when I'm going to be in Greece? That would be great. Trump's Iran. Reversal exposes one of his most dangerous lies. Ooh, I like this. I mean, there's so many lies now that we have documented. I don't understand why we haven't impeached him yet. Uh, he's a lying liar. It's what I always said. If he can't be honest about his own hair, how can he be honest about anything? No. 
The news that President Trump ordered strikes on Iran only to reverse himself at the last minute proves an occasion to revisit the big story that Trump told in the course of getting elected to the most powerful position on earth. The story went a little something like this. Trump grasped the festering popular discontent over multiple catastrophic elite failures that their architects were entirely oblivious to as they tittered away in their coastal enclaves. Trump would smash the elite consensus on immigration and globalization, no longer subjecting U.S. workers to the competition from unskilled migrants and foreign sweatshop wage workers that had wreaked carnage on the Appalachian and industrial Midwestern heartlands. And Trump would end the elite consensus on foreign policy that admired young men and women from those forsaken places in faraway forever wars that represent the height of elite hubris and folly. The latest Iran news exposes one of the most important and potentially most destructive false narratives at the core of that whole story. Trump confirmed on Twitter he had ordered strikes as a response to Iran's shooting down of a surveillance drone, but canceled the attack only 10 minutes before the strike. He did this after learning it could result in 150 deaths, which he called not proportionate to shooting down an unmanned drone. So let's give Trump qualified credit here. It does appear he's resisting the push for war from the administration's hawks. Another explanation is that he thinks Iranian capitulation is inevitable anyways, as will be discussed below. This seeming instinct against war, if it exists, is often presenting presented as a signal of signaling contradiction, one that pits this reluctance against his desire to look tough in international affairs. That reluctance is said to be grounded in the story he told in 2016, his nationalist and America first aversion to pouring U.S. blood and treasure down foreign sinkholes. But in this particular case, it's precisely because the story he told is completely false that Trump is trapped in that contradiction right now. We are trapped in an escalating situation with the potentially horrible consequences. Trump's story about Iran has always been a lie. As many observers have noted, see uh, from Evelyn Farkas or this post editorial, those are links. It is Trump's decision to pull out the international nuclear deal negotiated by President Barack Obama that has led to this moment. The short version Iran was abiding the deal and was being constrained from developing nuclear weapons, but Trump pulled out, then reimposed sanctions to choke their economy and has since dictated terms for sanctions relief that appear deliberately unrealistic, cornering Iran into a choice between escalating on its side or submitting entirely to those terms. As David Ignatius explains, the administration is confident that the submission is right around the corner, but this would require total capitulation. The continued push for this makes miscalculation and war more likely. But let's focus on the original withdrawal from the deal. In the run-up to that decision, Trump falsely claimed Iran was on the verge of total collapse before Obama negotiated it and overinflated what Iran financially got from it to falsely portray it as a giveaway to Iran. Trump also insisted the deal was premised on believing Iran could be trusted not to develop nukes. In fact, it had very strict verification mechanisms and the deal would inevitably fail to constrain Iran. 
That latter claim proved false for a time as Iran continued to abide by it. Now Iran is suggesting it will restart its program. But this coming after the United States pulled out of the deal that was successfully constraining it, compounding the folly of Trump's decision. Trump, Trump's claim that the deal was hopelessly weak, which has been revealed as false by events, though one cannot conclusively say it would have worked forever, probably derived from the fact that Trump couldn't bear that Obama had negotiated it. Trump treated it as weak by definition, but there's deeper deception here, one that goes back to the whole story Trump tells. The deeper deception. How did Trump square his campaign vow to pull out of the nuclear deal with his promise to avoid Mideast quagmires? By claiming not just that elites were foolishly sinking us into such quagmires, but also that our elites were weak and allowing other countries to take us to the cleaners. Trump's vow to withdraw was a sign of his strength. He'd be tougher with Iran, unilaterally so, and force its full capitulation without any shots fired that way. As Zach Beauchamp has exhaustively demonstrated, or Beecham, that's so funny how you pronounce that name, Trump has never really been adverse to military adventurism in any deeply committed sense. What he campaigned on was much closer to hawkish nationalism. He blustered for years about using force unilaterally. Now, as we're seeing, this manifesting itself in open hostility to international compromise solutions. The Iran deal was perfect, designed to constrain Iran, not through total capitulation to all of our demands, but through a painstakingly negotiated international compromise. It was working, but Trump's worldview did not permit acknowledge of this. And now he's making good on his vow to achieve total capitulation through toughness, and we're living through this deeply risky consequences. We should hope Trump really is reluctant to go to war and that this reluctance will prevail. But the terrible thing here is that despite the Trump story about elite failure, the Iran deal was one case in which international elites actually did set up the framework that likely would have averted senseless, costly foreign quagmires. In other words, here they got a very big thing right. And he got rid of it because he's an idiot. I really don't want to have, I don't believe in war. I don't think that war is, um, I think it's terrible. <laughs> I don't want anyone to die. Um, and I don't think anyone wants to fight. I think that's the thing too, is that we've sort of confused Americans into at least poor Americans, that the only option they have is to go into the military. I don't think anyone in the military wants to go to war. You know, and I don't necessarily see the military as... When it's militia, I think it's bad. But I think that grouping people together in a governmental way to get things done is good. So... Instead of an army of people fighting, I would say, why don't we have an army of farmers that all, you know, like if we're going to have uneducated, disenfranchised people that have no other choices and we force them into the military, what if there was like a military that didn't kill people? It's one of those things where 
we build bombs and that makes money and then we explode things and then we get the contracts to rebuild them. Why not go into a place and rather than blow it up with bombs and shit, why not just spend the money? Like if a bomb costs a million dollars, instead of dropping a bomb, we could fix a school. I mean, uh, am I a utopian socialist? Probably. I don't know. It's it's some it's some some scary stuff to think about. This is from a day ago. That last um, that was a Washington Post opinion that I just recent that I just read from a smart guy. Big words, Greg Sargent, opinion writer. Uh, this is USA Today. Uh, do I want US? Yeah, let's do USA Today. I mean, what's going on? A military strike on Iran? Trump is reluctant to do it despite a history of threats. Dear Lord, don't let us go to war, you know? Following uh, the shootdown of the American drone, tensions are high, but this is nothing new. So... President Donald Trump has threatened Iran for years and says he's willing to use force, but allies and aides say it would take an exceptional provocation for him to act, given his equally long criticism of endless wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We are ready for the absolute worst, and we are ready for sense, too, Trump said Monday, adding that he is also open to the idea of new talks with Iranians over their nuclear program. Well, why why take the talks away that worked and add new talks? Because they're my talks. I'm just going to sit back and wait, Trump said. In the meantime, Trump aide said Iran's latest actions, the seizure of a British oil tanker and the arrest of alleged pro-American spies are likely to provoke a military response. Yet there are circumstances under which Trump could decide to use force, says current and former aides. More aggressive Iranian actions, an attack that kills Americans, a mass casualty attack on an ally, a closure of the Strait of Hormuz to the international shipping traffic would lead to an equally aggressive response by Trump. His position is he doesn't want to get us into new wars, said Fred Felitz, former chief of staff to Trump national security advisor John Bolton. But he's prepared to use force if necessary. I mean, it's just like, really, won't he? I think this is all like a waving my hand over here so that we don't see over here. You know, like, look over here, look over here. Don't look over here. Look over here. Look over here. Look over here. Don't look over here. I mean, every day is stressful because what is happening in our world right now with the the immigration and the, the, the racism, the blatant racism that is, you know, I don't believe in the trickle-down theory monetarily as Reagan, but I do believe in trickle-down theory of thought. And if the number one American is a misogynistic pile of racist dog shit, then it trickles down. And now I have poop in my hair, and I didn't want that. I took a shower today. I'm telling you, I'm looking at a picture of him right now. If he can't be honest about his hair... He can't be honest about anything. Man, your rug is, it's not a pretty, it's not a good look. I mean, you have a 
former chief of staff who's advising an advisor, well, can we get some advice on your hairpiece? Because I think you need help. I wish that Jonathan from Queer Eye could get in there and be like, you are serving me no gorgeous realness. <laughs> I don't even, I doubt, I doubt they'd even go. Th- I don't know. There's such loving and fun individuals. I wonder what they'd do if they were confronted with if they tried to queer eye the president you know and that's and he and he needs it the difference is i was gonna say what if they went into barack he'd be like this is great michelle would love it too but with this guy oof, oof. throughout his presidential campaign trump frequently hit predecessor george w bush over costly military action in afghanistan and iraq During a foreign policy speech in September 2016, Trump talked about how to avoid the endless wars we are caught in now. Trump also hammered Iran during that campaign and during his tenure in the White House. He has attacked predecessor Barack Obama for signing an agreement which made U.S. and allies reduced economic sanctions on Iran as it gave up the means to make nuclear weapons. When Iran detained a ship... In January 2016, and released pictures of American sailors on their knees, hands behind their head, Trump tweeted that it had humiliated the United States with the capture of our 10 sailors. Horrible pictures and images. We are weak. I will not forget. Trump's decision to withdraw the United States from the Iran nuclear agreement and impose new sanctions on Tehran triggered many of the new tensions. In recent weeks, Trump has held out the possibility of talks on new terms. He a big pilot dog shit. These kinds of competing impulses, threats on Iran, cautions over military action played out last month, blah, 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 which was the other thing. All right. I mean, this is all very scary. And I, but I honestly think that this is about look over here, look over here, because as we have, you know, Seven days ago, most Americans think Trump's tweets are, tweets are racist and un-American. Trump denies tweets were racist. I mean, this was the last week thing with AOC and uh, the four ladies. Go back to your shithole countries and fix those before you come here. Really? I mean, that's the other thing is that maybe he doesn't, he honestly doesn't know he's racist. And and, and I can understand that a little because that used to be, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that I have been very, very racist in the past and I didn't, um, and now I can, and now I can see, I, I can see my white privilege. I see it. I get it. Like, um, Uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Theob Presley were natural-born U.S. citizens, while Omar was born in Somalia and immigrated to the U.S. when she was young. She became a citizen in 2000 when she was 17 years old. So, go back to your country. Go back and help fix the totally broken and crime-infested places from which they came. I mean, it seems pretty blatantly... I mean, it's just mean, too. That's the other thing, is... He's just mean. He's like, and it goes down to that trickle down thing. He's like a big jerk face. And I don't understand why people like that. Like, I felt like at least our presidents have been likable in the past. Even George W. Bush was a motherfucking likable guy. Like, 
I, at the time, I hated him, and now I'm like, oh, bring him back. I mean, because at least the figurehead was nice. Like, I get it. Dick Cheney's the Antichrist. I get it. I get it. It's the people behind the president. But this time, it's not the people behind the president that are awful and, and uh, racist. It's the president himself, which is absolutely new territory. Absolutely new territory for us. Or, or maybe it's not. I mean... I guess we've had really racist presidents in the past because we used to have slavery. So, and is the only way to get out of this racism is to acknowledge it. You have to like, you know, if you have a gangrenous toe, you can't just leave it there and be like, well, well, it's going to be fine. Well, no, you got to chop that mother off. You got to, you got to clean out the festering wound and you have to acknowledge that it's there. You have to. Otherwise, what do, what do we do? We have to acknowledge the problem in order to, to fix the problem. It's, it's the old AA thing. You have to, the first step is to realize you have a problem. So... Let's all take that first step together. Oh, wow. Republicans embrace fake news to cover for Trump's racism. This is three hours ago. This is funny. Uh, This is Slate. Almost as hated as it is beloved. This website. Uh, Republicans embrace fake news to cover for Trump. Trump's racist attacks on Democratic congresswomen are indefensible, so Republicans are defending him with lies. President Donald Trump is absolutely, positively not a racist. That's the message the Republican leaders have delivered since July 14th, when Trump told four Democratic congresswomen of color to go back to the countries from which their families came. Trump's real beef, according to Republicans, is that these congresswomen keep praising al-Qaeda, condemning Jews, and calling America garbage. They're wrong when they espouse vile anti-Semitism. Republican Liz Cheney, the chair of the House Republican Conference, declared at a press conference on July 16th, our opposition to our colleagues' belief has absolutely nothing to do with race or gender or religion. Oh, you think? It's an odd defense because the principal allegations against the four congresswomen are lies. Some are pure fabrications. Others are inversions of what they said. The lies were fact-checked and debunked more than a week ago. But Republicans continue to repeat them. That's because the GOP is desperate to mask Trump's bigotry and, emboldened by his successful use of disinformation as a political strategy, has lost all compunction about making things up. Trump's go back tweets posted on July 14th didn't specify any offensive statements by the congresswoman. He accused them of only two things coming from broken and crime infested countries and telling the people of the United States how our government is to be run. His argument was naked. If you're a minority immigrant or a child of minority immigrants, don't meddle in our country. The racism of tweets was far to avert for Republican leaders, so they concocted a more palatable story. According to the Washington Post account drawn from interviews with more than two dozen White House aides, advisors, lawmakers, and others, Republican politicians and operatives 
urged Trump to refrain away from the racist notion at the core of the tweets. Advisors wrote new talking points and handed him reams of opposition research on the four congresswomen. The new script was that the four congresswomen hated America. On July 15th, the Republican National Committee posted an opposition research into one of its Twitter accounts. At a cabinet meeting on July 16th, Trump gestured to papers in front of him. I have a list of things here said by the congresswomen that is bad. That is so bad, he told reporters. They hate our country. Two days later, Trump added, I could go over page by page many, many statements I've seen. Statements that they made with such hatred toward our country. And what were those statements? At a July 15th White House event, Trump pulled a sheet of talking points from his jacket and began to read them. He claimed that one of the four congresswomen, Representative Ihan Omar of Minnesota, had said, when I think of Al-Qaeda, I can hold my chest out. He accused Omar of speaking about how wonderful Al-Qaeda is and talking about how great Al-Qaeda is. Twice, he claimed that Omar hates Jews. Trump's also denounced Republican Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, a New York Democrat, for daring to call our country and people garbage. He added that the Speaker Nancy Pelosi had said, make America white again. That's a very racist statement. None of this is true. What Pelosi had actually written in a rebuttal to Trump's go back tweets was that his plan to make America great again has always been about making America white again. She was accusing the president of racism. Trump's talking points also twisted Omar's words. In a 2013 interview, Omar condemned Islamic terrorists, drawing a distinction between normal people like herself and the people that are carrying on evil acts, because it is an evil act. She denounced Al-Shabaab, a violent Islamic group for terrorizing her country of birth, Somalia. In the interview, Omar also mocked a professor for lifting his shoulders and raising his intensity when speaking the world's words Al-Qaeda. Trump took her mockery of the professor and perverted it into fake first-person statements of pride. The president also lied about Ocasio-Cortez. In an interview four months ago, she was asked about the difficulty of getting politicians to support ambitious changes like Medicaid for all and a $15 minimum wage. She replied that the progressives shouldn't settle for 10% better from garbage. She was criticized. In, she was criticizing incrementalism, and by garbage, she was referring to policies she deemed inadequate. The full transcript of her remarks shows no basis to claim, as Trump does, that she was disparaging our country and our people. Yeah, 10% better? Uh, yeah, okay. I want to see those. I'll go back to those remarks. Three major media outlets, CNN, ABC, and the New York Times, debunked Trump's slanders on July 15th. Over the next three days, other outlets, PolitFact, FactCheck.org, The Post, The Associated Press, USA Today, and NBC News, published further evidence that the charges were false. But on July 19th, Trump repeated the same smears. He claimed six times the Congresswoman had called our country and our people garbage. Hey, I'll say it. Our country and our people are garbage. 
you are garbage. Our president is garbage. All right, here's the rant. He's, he, when you point the finger, there are three fingers pointing back at yourself, you 70-year-old white fuckface. Get out. Die. Kill yourself. I'm not going to advocate for anyone to kill the president, but I am going to advocate for him to kill himself. Eat more McDonald's. You are a pile of garbage. You, you, you're calling, oh, we, the people, finally elected representative people. Women. There are women. There are women in our government. Oh, no. Whoa. And we know what our president thinks about women. He, we know that he, we think, he thinks we're just all objects and you can just grab us by the pussy and look in our mouths at our teeth and tell who's pretty and who's ugly. And if you're fat, you're, you know, that's how oh. I'm speechless that we would finally be having some people in the White House that are speaking for the people. There are a lot of what seven out of ten people believe in sort of socialism. Why do we not deserve free health care? Why do we we're, why do we only so only rich people get to be healthy? Is that is that how it works? Like I, I guess I guess that's the way the world is changing is that the rich elitist people get to live and everyone else doesn't i and but we the people i challenge any reporter who has access to the president to ask him what the first three words of the motherfucking constitution are oh you love this country so much oh you love it so much do you know anything do you know anything about the history do you know Latoya is not even here, but I'm going to preach reparations again. I just watched The West by Ken Burns, and I was cry. I we slaughtered the people who were here first. We demonized them. We vilified them. We called them savages, and then we just murdered them, time and time again promises broken promises this is your land this isn't your land oh murdering all the buffalo the poor lakota i I mean and with no with just even some of the first-hand accounts were like buffalo on the range that's just a shell costs that shell costs 25 cents i get four dollars per buffalo that's i mean money it was i'm shooting gold it's like we just rush full force and then go oh did we did I hurt you did I maybe if we thought before we had some actions if I mean if we go to war with Iran I don't even what do we how do we rise up okay going back to this I'm really I'm sorry I want to read the full transcript um there's nothing new about Trump telling lies What's new is the boldness with which the rest of Trump's party is embracing his practice of complete fabrication. On Sunday, Mercedes Schlapp, a senior advisor to Trump's re-election campaign, went on ABC News to denounce the chants of the squad, the anti-Semitic chants that they pushed forward. There are no such chants on Fox News Sunday when senior White House policy advisor Stephen Miller repeated Trump's false allegation. Chris Wallace showed viewers the Ocasio-Cortez garbage quote and explained its meaning. She didn't say the country was garbage. She said some of the policies she opposes are garbage. 
Miller refused to back down. It's literally impossible to read the quote that way, Miller insisted. She's saying that America, in her view, right now, is garbage. Amen. Amen, AOC. Hell yeah, it is. It's garbage right now. Thanks for speaking the truth. Congressional leaders and GOP officials have joined the smear campaign. At the press conference with Cheney on July 16th, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy claimed that Omar had questioned whether someone of the Jewish faith could support America. That's false. Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel asserted that another congresswoman, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, quote, says she's getting a calming feeling when she thinks about the Holocaust. A complete misrepresentation. On Sunday, long after the garbage quote had been debunked, Cheney again accused Ocasio-Cortez of, quote, taking, talking about the nation as garbage. The most avid liar has been Vice President Mike Pence. In a CBS News interview that aired on Sunday, Pence claimed that Ocasio-Cortez said this country was garbage and was referring to our country as garbage. He also accused Omar of vicious statements about, quote, the Jewish people in this country, specifically a reference to evil Jews. Trump made the same allegation on July 19th at the White House. Quote, they can't talk about evil Jews, which is what they say, evil Jews. That's pure fiction. Omar has never used the phrase evil Jews. She has never said anything about it, about Judaism or Jewish people. She has criticized some Israeli policies, but is always taking care in her words, quote, to distinguish between criticizing a military action by a government and attacking a political, a particular people of faith. She has consistently argued that no one should ever be targeted or disparaged on the basis of religion. Trump, Pence, and the RNC have ignored these statements. They have stuffed the words evil Jews into her mouth. This is vile. It's different from spin, which is based on dueling interpretations of fact. It's also different from political falsehoods of the past, which were surrendered in the face of evidence. When George W. Bush found no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, he admitted he was wrong. That ethic is gone. Trump has installed an authoritarian culture of raw disinformation, and his party has bought into it. Republicans are fabricating quotes, ignoring corrections, and disregarding the whole idea of truth. In this case, it's worth asking why they have to lie so hard and why they've chosen these particular lies. The answers are telling. Republicans had to invent fake quotes because in real life, nothing the Congresswomen have said, have done, or justified Trump's tweets. And Republicans chose these particular fictions bashing evil Jews, glorifying Al-Qaeda, dismissing America as garbage, because those are the smears that they thought they could pin on people named Omar and Ocasio-Cortez. In covering up for Trump's racism, his apologists have exposed their own. It's, I mean, it's absolutely mind-blowing to me what's happening in our world and that there is one and that's the thing is are are the republicans truly if we're looking at a representational representational government are um are the republicans equally representing the people here i mean is it all gerrymandering it's it's unbelievable to me that there are this many people that are 
down with racism uh, and and saying well I mean even why would they come up with evil Jews I I'm I'm just I'm flabbergasted at what's happening right now let's go back and look at what um Casio Cortez actually wrote, or let's pull what Pelosi said. Let's go back. A full transcript of her remarks. Okay, here is the America's garbage stuff. Uh, which, uh, hey, and I 100% agree. Gosh, she's gorgeous. Um, and I shouldn't even, I shouldn't even care about that. It shouldn't matter at all. Okay, so. In defending himself against criticism of his treats that called four non-white U.S. congresswomen to go back to their totally broken crime-infested countries. Um, blah, 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 He leveled another incendiary falsehood against one of those congresswomen. Of the four women presumably targeted, three, Representative Ayanna Presley, Democrat Massachusetts, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, D- uh, Democrat New York, and Republican uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib, Michigan were born in the United States one okay this is blah 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 I want to see the full following is a full transcript okay here we go Ocasio-Cortez these are all quotes I think it's because you know so I'll go back with a story because even though people they try to characterize my district as far left and oh my god every socialist in America lives in East Bronx and Queens or whatever but there are a lot of Trump voting pockets in my district. And I talked to these folks and I'll never forget. There are parts of my district that look like the middle of the country, believe it or not. And I'll never forget this one older woman who came up to me and said, you know, I've always voted Democrat because growing up, my dad told me Democrats were the people that fight for the working man. And we stopped. And I think the working man and woman and people is the majority of this country. So what I think we saw was now both parties, frankly, abdicating their responsibility. And there was just no one fighting for the working people who were struggling. And so as a result, it almost created this opportunity and you can take all of his anger and direct it to a negative and destructive end that allows a small group of people to benefit a great amount. Or you can have, you can, you have to take a really bold stance to bring the other way and direct it to the possibility of what we can accomplish together. And I think the thing that is really hard for people to sometimes see is that we are on this path of a slow erosion and a slow, slow, slow move away from what we've always been. We'll be a hundred miles and you won't even know that you've drifted a hundred miles. So when someone is talking about our core, it's like, Oh, this is radical. But this isn't radical. This is what we've always been. It's just now we've strayed so far away from what has made us powerful and just and good and equitable and productive. And so I think all these things sound radical compared to where we are. But where we are is not a good thing. This idea of 10% better from garbage shouldn't be what we settle for. It feels like Moderate is not a stance. It's just an attitude toward life like, meh. I love her. I love her. She just said meh. I love it. 
Oh, there's more. Well, don't hold back. Tell me how you really feel about incrementalism, Ocasio-Cortez. But here's the thing that upsets me, is what we've become so cynical that we view meh or eh. We view cynicism as an intellectually superior attitude, and we view ambition as youthful naivete. And when we think about the greatest things we've ever accomplished as a society have been ambitious acts of vision and meh is like worship now for what for what she's great love her i'm gonna post her statements um love you aoc i love that we get to call you aoc i love that you have like a little nickname and you're like young and amazing and a woman who's talking about the things that i think are important everyone should be making 15 dollars an hour come on you know I'm super hardcore Marxist. Anyone who listens to this show knows that. And I really believe in the equal valuation of labor. And if we could, instead of having a military, if we could have armies of farmers and armies of carpenters, and we could give everyone, we we say we the people, we say that this is the land of opportunity, but is it anymore? I mean... We have a whole new generation that, as, as AOC said, we're sort of slowly drifting. We have a whole generation that just doesn't tip. <laughs> Although um, some of them do. And they. Uh, what I realized last night on my shift is that if they sometimes, when they don't tip at the beginning, and I'm super, super nice to them anyway, they come back when they're done and they tip. Which is weird. It's like... I hope that it's worth it. Um, it's I'm. It scares me too that when you, when you put Trump into the Google search bar, these are the first things. So when you put in Trump, what you get is Trump recent racist tweets, Trump Iran, Trump Twitter, Trump straws, Trump tweets, Trump racism, racist tweet, Trump news, Trump approval label, Trump rally. Just when you put his name in. And if I put in is, oh, this is great. This is hilarious. So I put in the search bar, Trump is. And it comes out, it spits out, Trump is a racist. Trump is an idiot. Trump is a traitor. Trump is crazy. Trump is stupid. Trump is the antichrist. Trump is awesome. Trump is great. Trump is a moron. There, uh, when I was doing poetry back in the day, there is a theory, a, a practice of poetry called flarfing that was built off of sort of using the internet the idea behind flarf is it it almost comes from william burroughs cut up methods which comes from raymond Cano's sort of poetry french games and all that uh and it's using the internet you like you put in something as an idea and then it gives you the words and it takes the pressure off of you as a poet to try to like come up with all the language from inside yourself it it makes you more of a crafter you know you, you get the language and then you redact and you change and this is hilarious. I mean, it's like a poet, in, a poem in itself. I, I love it. 
I put in Trump is A, and we even have better ones. Trump is a racist. Trump is an idiot. Trump is a traitor. Trump is awesome. Trump's a moron. Trump is a crook. Trump is a loser. Trump is a liar. Trump's a criminal. Trump is a bully. I mean, I don't want to talk about him all the time, but geez, shouldn't we? Are we going to, what are we going to do? What can we do? Who else feels powerless? Raise your hand. <laughs> I hope you, I raised my hand in the building. Um, hey, let's listen to a little more of the Japanese Bjork Kope. And I'm going to, I'll be right back. I'll, I'll read you some of my new high marks. I, I'm writing a poetry book right now where I get really, really high. And then I read marks Karl Marx, and then I redact certain sections into poems. So, because, you know, what else am I going to do? one of these to you guys the other the other week uh let's see this one i call cubit housing next or never like a swarm of locusts masses of ragged crowding decayed stowaways ebbing labor and flowing capital states hideous industrial town dwellings today bearable tomorrow's news Shocking abuse. The nomad population surplus grace in basements and lofts. But you could join the army, or worse, fall ill. Blessed are the poor, degraded and bruised. Fever patients of frightful mortality. They are the center festering. Transformed liberals wave ever over. There are ten persons in one small cellar and no wine. Without beds old dirty rags and armpit shavings an average of three to a bed dark damp smelling of babies stinking holes unarrived together married in ordinary clothes hey that is about homeless shelters or you know something like that it's it's mostly it's 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 my little diatribe on housing Hi, Marks, baby. Hi, Marks. Um, here's another one. This is called Progressively Thrive. How lame an anticlimax, poor versus less poor, becomes working day extremes. Four years in the asylum speaks to compare my proportion cheapening. Subsistence for some, wealth for few. Lessening as their grip speaks. Human life is but in nine cases out of ten. A struggle for existence. What do you think? Pretty good. This one's about food stamps. 
uh, leftovers. The table shows no beer, no milk, to nourish our condition in times of great duress. Butter, sugar, meat weekly, how much is the cost of health? If diet aggravates disease, in my opinion growing, and is affirmed by the poor, what is the greatest rule? The degrees between subsistence and household, here a costly space. Additional pangs of hunger drive us out into light and air, public scavenging, exposing poverty. When poorness is a sanitary context, where can we dwell? I am my neighbor and neither have bacon, but who deserves adequate protection against weather? Terrible magnitudes of serious deprivation. Ignored populations watch as they dine and hope for some leftovers. What? I like my new poems. I'm proud of myself. I think they're pretty good. I don't know. Maybe I'm pretentious. I, I, I think I'm definitely pretentious, but... Hey, I don't know. I like poetry that uh, when I first started writing poetry, it was like, I'm a girl and I love boys and I have longing and blah, blah, blah. Meow, meow, meow. And, um, and it may, I mean, and I've always wanted to sound smart. Like, so here we go. Thanks. Thanks for the words, Marks. So that's the whole thing. I, these all, all the words come from these texts, and then I, I take just huge swaths of text, right? And then I copy-paste it into a document. And then from there, I pull out all kinds of things. I pull out tropes, um, small phrases that mean that I like, and sometimes I'll, I flip the words around, or I'll... Sometimes I scan the whole page, and any of the words that pop out to me, I, I write... I write down and then I sort of go from there. Um, and then it, a theme, I mean, cause the words are all there. So there's clearly a theme develops, but it's like shaping the theme. This one is called, this one is called suffer frightful spectacle yesterday in the metropolis, unemployed thousands parade with their flags to human torrent. They are dying of hunger. Terrible fracks are simple, cheek to jowl begging, enough remembering, suffer. Fashion, sailor, prisoner, who will watch the children? A very small sum to initiate happiness. What does it mean? Right? I, I, that's the stuff, that's the kind of poetry I like is when you, you can bring it to a class and everyone starts talking about it and they tell you what it means and, and you just smile and nod and you're like, yes, of course, of course, that's exactly what I was going for. And, uh, and you're in these workshops where people are telling you like, well, this part I like because of this and this and this and this, and they tell you all the reasons. And it's just funny because sometimes they're just, they're just made up. Your rousing crisis become a cause effect on your turn, varying accidents, reproduction self form of suppose another crisis consolidates regard events of hands narrow marriage let's not be occasional loss mainly depending on injury can you subsist average your rousing crisis again returning first suppose that power hides in slack superfluous arms prudent habits rid of deficiency compensate yourself 
That demand, she said, was too rapid. What would be the consequence? <laughs> You're arousing crisis. Uh, this one I'm not sure about, how I feel about it. Um, I think it's a little bit heavy-handed. It's called it Takes It to Make It, Baby. First, disengage every large individual or smaller corresponding command. All accumulation matters. Becomes new accumulation. Second, time portions greatness. Scatters points of no quality. The house will not function, thwarted by degrees of sporadic incompetence. Then, increase mass wealth concentrating capital production is large-scale everything growing a widening from the social good keep listening divide us from the whole make capitalist families believe their independence this is not splitting their attention does not mean form destruction last that simple concentration of all command of labor means accumulation to a single hand could be yours Actually, I like that one, but I feel like it's a little heavy-handed. I'm going to read them all to you since I don't know what else to say until LaToya calls. Glutted phenomena. Fiction confuses the laws. A ratio of spheres attracting whys and wherefores. Power-weighted pivots. Gutted local needs. Set free my fixed hand. Active impulses seeking an outlet. Yeah, that one's pretentious. Um, a ratio of spheres attracting whys and wherefores. Oh, Pam, come on. Lesser violent repulsions. Oh, no, technical anything. A power without proportion. At other times increasing lesser violent repulsions. Undergoing transitory superfluous change. Historic modes expanding society of and now admit additional fullness and wealth with disposable limits varied critical degrees already employing extensions expand every place with unusual art this massive power of social wealth or just change the channel I liked this one too. I also like the word spheres. Accumulation. Affecting more or less or less as more or as a whole. Consider totality. The movement periodically now causing change. Simultaneity over spheres. What am I seeing? Connected or absorbed by it. In others again growing, growling for a time of change. Less as more as more and yes. Stuff will never be enough. Circulate this yarn. Amass objects. Get every kind. Get every part. Consequent consumption, likewise commodities. All components satisfy. Produce some products. Capitalist transfer lies. Market, market, market. Outstripped despotic inroads appear unavoidable. Revolution now in different countries. Another composition, the first place compromised. What were that the case? Her circulation valueless, deducting remains henceforth. 
all these objects. America, follow the rules. Sweep the dangerous class. Throw off social scum, the lowest layers passively rotting. Swamp yourself virtually. Strip yourself of character and national morality. Lurk and ambush, like the upper hand. Acquire status and condition society. Presently, the immense majority cannot stir, cannot spring, cannot straddle independence and rise up. A raging civil war, isolation now acceptable. The rules are incompetence. Elaborate. One, doctrine my conditions, liberal proletariat. Two, sell my labor, draw no profit, demand competition. Three, how do you exist being poor and working, living under conditions as they are today? Four, originate industry, repeat. Precipitate revolution cheaper. Once you have the impulse to become more and more divided, complete a piece of work. Fall into the hands of big capitalists, depriving independence at genuine expense. Elaborate. All right, this is the last one. Thanks for holding fast with me. This is the AltaCast here on MutinyRadio.fm. I'm your host, Pam Benjamin. I'm not joined by LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth. She should be giving me a call. They own it all. Hush, revolution. Shortly afterward, sound set fire spreading the other side. The hour of vulgar struck and corn stacks. This disputation, how the learned booty pumped. How out of labor divided with most advantage industrial capitalist. Today's accumulation, rich idlers. Yearly hour of the 12 announced discovery. I is an instrument, this savage exercise. He explains how and why. A sample. When we savage, says Senor, some fabrication progresses, demands fruits, eating them up, jogging on, childlessly dissipating value, never refusing champagne. Well, those are my high marks poems. I'm pretty proud of them. I hope that you enjoyed them. It was nice to read them aloud and sort of see them again. So that all came from the idea. So that's all flarfism as a poetic construct. And I jumped off of that because of you can use um, if you if you want to write poetry, there's there's so many fun ways to do it if you want to express yourself and you don't want to take the language from inside yourself because you're like, what am I going to say? So I challenge you to use the Google search bar and put in even usually what it starts with is you put in your own name. So I put in Pam needs and then what it says, Pam needs to be, Pam needs children, Pam needs kids, Pam needs baby, Pam needs school, Pam needs center, Pam needs dogs, Pam needs dog. Pam needs child. So I would take those. And if I put in Pam needs a, Pam needs adult. <laughs> Pam needs adults. That's true. Um, so that's flarfism. Another way to do it, which is a fun game, um, which is similar to William Burroughs cut-ups, is you just take a newspaper, open it up to a random page, 
get a Sharpie and just start circling words and phrases that hit you or make you feel anything. And then you look at all of those and string them together and you can just do it the order that you see them or you can, you know, put them, craft them a little, but once you have it all on the paper, then you can move it around from there. Or once I, the computer is a lot easier for, for flarfism, but then it's just moving things around and sort of jury rigging to make your own poem. So I challenge you this week to do a flarf, do a flarf with a kid. Uh, let's see what else we have going on in the world. I don't, I, uh, there was supposed to be some impeachment shit happening today. Um, Politico, here we go. Nuchin seemingly diffuses Trump's treason threat to Google over China. Department of Justice launches antitrust probe of Silicon Valley as Facebook settlement looms. Amazon Facebook lobbying hits record high amid heightened DC scrutiny. We are being outspent. We are being outpaced. Is America seeding the future of all to China? Bernie Sanders says he would absolutely try to break up Facebook, Google, and Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so funny. There's so many monopolies that still exist, and we have like antitrust laws and, and anti-monopoly laws uh, from the 20s, uh, from the early times. And... Uh, it's just so funny because there's so many monopolies like PG&E. Our power in California comes from PG&E. There's only one choice. It's not like you can choose, but it's also not, they aren't a um, governmental entity. So it's not like it's socialized. They're a monopoly on our uh, electricity and our gas, on our power. It's just funny to me. Trump pledges to probe into Google treason claim. What? I think the most interesting one is we are being outspent. We are being outpaced. Are we seceding our future? Are we ceding our future to China? I think that's interesting. Oh, over a, a rivalry over AI. Not all. That's interesting. Because they're, I mean, this is, it's, it's all very scary to me because it feels like the end times are upon us. If, if anybody ever studied the Bible, um, I remember watching a video when I was so young and it was so Christian and young and it scared me so much, but it was about the end times and they were saying that, you know, everyone would have a chip inside them and that would be, that's one of the marks of the beast is when you get implanted with this chip and, and it, we're almost there. I mean, we've got chips in all of our credit cards. They're in our phones. You know, the phones are always in our hands. So is the chip in us? Will it be coming soon? This, what if I don't want a chip? So I don't even have a smartphone, right? So if I refuse to be chipped, am I going to be, is it going to be like the lobster movie where I have to run out in the, 
in the forest or they turn me into an animal. Crazy stuff. Uh, let's listen to some more Cope and I'm going to look for that old, see if that I can find that video on YouTube because it was scary. <laughs> I remember being a little kid and being so scared of the end times. Well, I don't know why we want to scare the kids so much. Uh, enjoy some Copay. Dear Lord, I found it. I mean, it's it. I think it's called Years of the Beast. It's from 1981. College professor Stephen Miles and his wife, a young girl and a drifter, are suddenly faced with the the apocalypse. Uh, I'm. We're not going to watch the whole thing, obviously, but um, wow. This is also interesting. I put a, an apocalyptic stuff, and they're saying that 
Let's see, this is... End time prophecy finally fulfilled in 2019. Could it be true? They won't, they won't give me playback on that one. Dang you. Well, let's start this and see if I remember it. This is going to be more like, um, let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Here on the AltaCast. Warning. Use it face-to-face instruction setting at home use only. It means just that. Instructional settings. Christian settings. is a fictional account concerning a great biblical truth. The producers make no prophetic claim for the various details within this film. However, the basic truth remains sound. For now, we see through a glass darkly, but everything will be illuminated. Night in a high-vaulted, narrow, gothic den. Faust restless in his armchair at the desk. Faust. I have, alas, studied philosophy, jurisprudence, and medicine, too. And worst of all... I remember this. Theology. With keen endeavor through and through. And here I am, for all my lore, the wretched fool I was before. Called master of arts and doctor to boot, for 10 years almost I confute, and up and down, wherever it goes, I drag my students by the nose (laughs) and see that for all our science and art, we can know nothing. It burns my heart. Of course, I am smarter than all the shysters, the doctors and teachers and scribes and Christers. No scruple or doubt could make me ill. I am not afraid of the devil or hell. Dr. Miles, do you believe that we can know nothing? If I believed that, there would be no reason for this class. (laughs) Socrates, though, said that uh, the only thing I know, I know nothing. Uh, Sorry. I see I've already robbed you of five precious minutes of your vacation time. Well, ladies and gentlemen, study hard over the break, and uh, I will see you next term. I like that funky groove in the background. I don't know why that crapped out on me. Years of the Beast. Well, there it is. I found it. They're saying that there's an error in playback. So, uh, But I remember being so 
scared. It gets to this one point, and I'll watch that again at some point. Here's Cope. She's <laughs> Well, Years of the Beast. Good stuff. Let's see if I can find anything else from... I don't think Latoya's gonna call. It's okay. did fully cooperate with the investigation, gave a, a statement, and was terminated earlier today from the Gretna Police Department. Along with that, and in part of the investigation, in our internal affairs found that a second officer was involved and liked the post and that officer, as well, has been terminated from the Gretna Police Department. Um, Two police both of these officers fired. we consider have violated our, our policies regarding social media. Uh, we have a zero tolerance policy. Um, this incident, we feel, has been an embarrassment to our department. Wow. Two police officers fired over the Facebook uh, saying that she should be shot. Uh, that's, that's terrible. Um, this should be interesting. CNN analyst Fox fuels Trump's fixation with Ocasio-Cortez and Omar. That's what we were talking about today. So let's check that out, everybody. You're on Mutiny Radio, the AltaCast. It's, YouTube is being poopy. It's not letting me, uh, it's saying, we're not letting you. An error occurred, an error occurred. I'm like, tell me the information. I need to know. Especially since we were talking hey, about Let's process what this week has been like, a painful week, I think, for many Americans. The decision to call Trump's tweets racist. The New York Times, other news outlets had to make these choices. How did you view these choices? How were they made? I think media is going through an unprecedented time where the president, uh, his president's words are so kind of vocally uh, stoking that kind of white identity and white grievance politics. It's forcing new choices on choices on media outlets. I think newspapers want to show, our instinct is to show and not tell, right? The mm. instinct is to bring out a kind of evidence-based uh, showing of the president's history with race, putting it in context, as you talked about. But there is still a kind of uncomfort with using those labels that some some folks think will turn other people off. I mean, I think as someone who covers race and politics often, that the most important question that sometimes media loses sight of yeah. is just the question of truth. I mean, there is there is a there is a point that some make about whether it turns off readers or what's going to be the reaction. I think the question we should be asking, which is back to our kind of journalistic fundamentals, is 
was it racist? Was it not racist? And those are the lens in which media has to come to grips with, becoming comfortable with using those type of phrases when they are warranted. And there are multiple words to use depending on what's going on. Bigoted and xenophobic. Exactly. We should get specific and explain why we're getting specific. Tara, what's your view of this? Because one of the standards editors at NPR uh, said this week, we should not be in the business of moral labeling. That's the view from NPR, but a lot of news outlets have been saying the president's attack was racist. Where do you come down? With respect, to, I'm, so I'm on the other side. I'm on the PR side of this, and I can tell you, with respect to to uh, this issue, this ongoing issue that we seem to be grappling with, is journalism to me and what it has been historically in historic context is it's always been about exposing wrong wrongdoing exposing the corruption of both government as well as corporations anyone can be a stenographer the job of a journalist is not to be a stenographer. And the Trump administration has actually leveraged the fact that journalism is often looking to just put out there what he said. Just quote and him. So, just quote him. And so he uses that to his advantage to mm. mislead the public. So, so anyone can be a stenographer. The role of the jur of journalists should be watchdogs, should be about exposing things. Historically, Pentagon Papers in 1971, journalism at its best. 1972, the Watergate break-in, journalism at at its best. 1992, mm. exposing sexual misconduct in Congress. That is what our uh, journalism industry has done at its best. And that is the legacy and the history of journalism in this country. So I don't see why we would deviate from that now. Right. Not, don't just quote it, put it in context. And that applies to the rallies as well. Dan, the, the Wednesday night rally where we, we see the audience chanting, send her back. Trump did one of those things where he said, don't believe your own eyes, don't believe your own ears. He said that he interrupted right away and moved on. Well, not that interrupted, he said he, he moved on right away. Obviously, 13 seconds was an eternity uh, at that rally. Why do you think he gets away with telling his fans, don't believe what you saw on that videotape, just believe what I'm saying now? Don't well, believe your lying eyes. Partly because he's a great showman. Let's face it, he's very good on television. He's a powerful figure on television. But the other thing I think we have to keep in mind, and this goes back to a bit of the previous conversation, look, racism is as racism does. Mm -hmm. And this argument among journalists about whether we should say that racism is racism, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, doesn't get very far. <laughs> when it's racism, it needs to be called racism. Mm -hmm. But I do point out that the president, it isn't enough just to call out his racist language. When he does things like he lies repeatedly about the four uh, young women congressmen, he's lied repeatedly. He's taken their words out of context, which is pretty much a lie in and of itself. Now, the journalist's job, whether it's a rally or the president's tweet or the president standing shouting on the back lawn of the White House, is to put that in context. There's a dangerous trap of forgetting. Journalists tend to figure the long line of things that you outlined to start the program. It's very important to put these things into context. And frankly, what we journalists should be doing is every time the president tells a lie, for example, about these four congressmen, right away it needs to be pointed out that this is a lie. And to call it what it is, not just say, well, the president has said something here that's a little controversial. Yeah, I hate the word controversial these days. I see it in banners and headlines all the time. Controversial can be a really good thing. In yeah. this case, it's a gross, sickening thing. But you know, Brian, Americans pride themselves. We like straight talk. <laughs> we like somebody who looks you in the eye, has a firm handshake, and tells you what they think. Hmm. Don't try to cut it. So when it's racist, say that it's racist. 
when it's out of context, say it's out of context. Repeat what he said and then go through the record because there is this what I call dangerous trap of forgetting the long record. And that applies not only to what he's done in race, but what he's done to undermine the institutions of the country, the hmm. checks and balances, what he said during the campaign that he hasn't done. This doesn't get nearly as, uh, enough attention, in my opinion, that he promised he's going to take care of health care. He hasn't. He said he was going to start a big infrastructure. He hasn't. Uh, he said he was going to raise the minimum wage. He hasn't. So holding to account not just for the things that he says, including the racist things he says, but to what he said during the campaign. Mm. That's been pretty much forgotten, and I do think it needs to be brought to the forefront by reporters. Mm. Let's also briefly touch on where the president is getting these ideas from, why he's attacking these four progressive congresswomen. Uh, he's hearing a lot about them on Fox News. Look at the graphic that we produced here showing mentions of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez yeah. on Fox, CNN, and MSNBC, uh, basically from January up until this weekend. You can see that she's talked about on Fox a lot more than on CNN or MSNBC. And that is true as well for Ilhan Omar. So we decided to compare Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, to a couple of the leading House Democrats, Democrats who actually have a lot of power. Uh, we chose Jim Clyburn, for example, one of the leaders of Nancy Pelosi's uh, House. And we can put you on screen the mentions of Clyburn compared to AOC and Omar. And you see he's barely in the news uh, compared to these freshman congresswomen. Tara, is, is that a legitimate complaint that the press is focusing so much on the freshmen and not on the actual leaders of the House? That is, of course, a legitimate complaint. This is about racial opportunism. And Trump is taking advantage of, of race divisions in this country, existing, long existing fissures in this country, because he's been rewarded for doing so by his base. And so he's responding to that. And one of the things I want to point out, too, as someone who is in marketing and PR, is that that so-called so extemporaneous chant of send her back by the audience seems pretty suspicious, because typically that type of thing is organized. When you see chants in audiences, a lot of times it's either someone is stoking it from the you know backstage or offstage or there are people in the audience who have been sort of planted to do those things. So I think that people should actually look into that as well because this all seems I think Trump is far more calculating hmm. than people make him out to be. This is all a strategy. He won. And the answer to that is let's hear from voters more. If, if that's possible, let's hear from the voters in the crowd more. Right. Let's find out what they were thinking. I would like to spend ten times as much time hearing from voters as, as where we are now. And instead wrapping up here, the question I started with is the press up to the challenge? What do you recommend to newsrooms that are grappling with how to cover openly racist behavior from a U.S. president? I think in the same way we think about other issues that are core to kind of politics right now, in the same way that we uh, think about uh, health care and, and other kind of quote-unquote kitchen table issues, newsrooms need to recognize that race and identity will be the central key point of this election, and that we and we as media need to empower and reporters to think about those issues in the same kind of fact-driven, clear eyed, accountability-driven way that we think about other issues. And so that requires talking to voters. That requires talking to white voters and saying at, at those Trump rallies and saying, what do they think about this? When I talk to folks about white identity and what they're feeling right now, they will openly tell you uh, kind of that they are worried about a, a, a replacement in this country. They're worried about the influx of minorities and, and, and immigrants. And that is things that we cannot shy away from, because that is not the side on, that is not the side course of this election, it is the, the, the main entree. It is, it's the main story. The fading away of white dominance 
is a massive story, yeah. but sometimes the biggest stories are the hardest ones for us to tell, right? We're more comfortable covering a tweet than we are covering something that's affecting generations. Yeah, and, and to point back, we have a long history of being kind of bad at this stuff, if we want to be kind of honest. I mean, when we think about the civil rights movement, when we think about the Great Migration, when we think about newsrooms have historically struggled rising to the challenge of covering race in this country. This requires newsrooms thinking about the issue in a different way, yeah. and, and that's gonna be what we're gonna have to do going forward. This is an opportunity for all of us. Are newsrooms up to the challenge of reporting what's happening right now? I mean, I I don't know. I, what do, I mean, what do we believe in? Hey, listen to some call me Tim at two o'clock. We talk about every week what somebody believes in. Here, let's try to listen to this pile of dog shit so hard to listen to him speak, but let's try. These women have said horrible things about our country and the people of our country. Nobody should be able to do that, and if they want to do that, that's up to them. But I can't imagine they're going to do very well at the polls. And I say this, if the Democrats want to embrace people that hate our country, people that are far, so far left that nobody's ever seen it, anything like it, if they want to embrace people that are so anti-Semitic and anti-Israel, they want to do that. That's up to them. But I don't have to do that. I think what they say and what they've said is a disgrace to them, to the Democrats, and frankly, to our country. Trump slams AOC. You are standing by your tweet about going back to their original country. How would you feel if somebody asked the first lady to go back to her country? And what has she said to you about the chant, the tweet, about this entire episode? Yeah, if you go back into the four congresswomen, the things they've said about our country are terrible. Uh, what they've said about uh, Israel are just terrible. Uh, I don't know. I can't say for sure, but certainly a lot of people say they hate our country. And I think it's a disgrace what they've said. I think you can't talk that way about the United States. And I think, frankly, to say that about Israel, you know, we just gave the embassy in Jerusalem, making Jerusalem the capital of Israel. I just gave Golan Heights, recognized Golan Heights for Israel. I've done all of this for Israel. And then you have these people. I think that Omar, I find it hard to believe, but I hear Omar today put in, or yesterday put in, a uh, sanctions bill against Israel and other things beyond sanctions. So when I hear that, you just can't talk about our country that way. And when people are angry at them, I fully understand it. That this political feud that you're having with Congressman Omar and the rest of those Democrats that you've mentioned is a good thing politically for you, or do you think it turns people off? I don't know if it's good or bad politically. I don't care. But when people are speaking so badly, when they call our country garbage, think of that. That's worse than deplorable. 
what they call our country garbage. I don't care about politics. I don't care if it's good or bad about politics. Many people say it's good. I don't know if it's good or bad. I can tell you this. You can't talk that way about our country. Not when I'm he the president. So I think they've His said horrible things. So They're anti-Semitic. And you look at the kind of statements they've made about Israel, it's a disgrace. They have First Amendment rights to say what they want about our country. That's what the Constitution guarantees. Do you see not agreeing with you as the same thing as hating the country, sir? Yeah, they have First Amendment rights, but that doesn't mean I'm happy about them saying. And when they say bad things about us, we can certainly feel, and again, we have First Amendment rights also, we can certainly feel what and say what we want. Is there right? the First Lady and Ivanka advise you about the chants? What did the First Lady and Ivanka advise you about the chants? I know you guys talked about it. False information. It was fake news. You never talked about it No, nope. I talk about it, but they didn't advise me. They told me, but I didn't. What did they tell you? By the way, what you're saying, fake news. What did they tell you? Say it. The chants send her home. So you know what's racist to me? When somebody goes out and says the horrible things about our country, the people of our country, that are anti-Semitic, that hate everybody, that speak with scorn and hate, that, to me, is really a very dangerous thing. I think these four congressmen, and I could say some worse than others, but if you look at the statements they've made, what they call the people of our country and our country garbage, when they hit Israel the way they've hit Israel, so hard, so horrible, I think to me, that's a disgrace. And we should never forget it. We're dealing with people that hate our country. Wow. Well, talk about speaking with scorn and hate. Dear Pot. Meat kettle, you're both black. Except Trump is white and we have some brown ladies. You know, I I just thought that I thought America just some people hated brown people and some everybody hates women and now I'm like <sighs> I don't just wa- listening to him saying nothing. And lies, and just spit lies, and keep saying it over and over. Garbage. Anti-Semitic. Garbage. Israel. Anti-Semitic. Garbage. They didn't say that. Pulling words out. Saying whatever. Creating fake news. Creating fake news. Because you know what the real news is? The real news is that we are passing terrible immigration laws that wait. I don't even know what they're passing right now. They're closing the borders. Like Ocasio-Cortez said, there we've been slowly drifting away from what America was, ideally. And it's been such a gradual change that we haven't even noticed. It's the frog in the pot. You put the frog in the pot and you slowly bring up the heat. frog's not going to jump out because it doesn't know until it's boiling and it's dead. Oops. We're the frog, everybody, in that situation it's um i'm i'm 
I'm speechless because of what's happening right now. <laughs> like what our president is collusion with Russia. You're worried about anti-Semitism and you're worried about Israel when you there's coll- I mean, what happened with the Mueller report? Huh? What happened? What happened? Um, Mueller was supposed to testify today, I believe. And I don't know if that streamed 58 minutes ago. Robert Mueller testifies before House Intelligence Committee. This is what I was excited. It's it's clear Mueller didn't write this report. Uh, Alan Dershowitz says, uh, here we go. Oh, it's two hours, though. Jesus. Robert Mueller testifies before House Intelligence Committee. It's all there. 58 minutes ago, it was streamed all live. And Robert Mueller's full testimony to DJ. It's three hours. Oof. Can we give me a wrap up? Here, we'll go. We'll go to this. Chuck Rosenberg on Robert Mueller testimony. The book was better than the movie. <laughs> that's funny. Let's let's try that one because that's funny. The little silly guy. I don't want to put you on the spot. But I'm going to put you on the spot. What happened? You know, there's a difference between exciting and important. There are things that are exciting that are not important, and there are things that are important that are not particularly exciting. Perfectly said. This was not exciting, but it's no less important than what we already knew, right? So, you know, we talked about folks preferring movies to books. Occasionally, the books are better than the movies. Uh, In this case, the book was much better than the movie. But, and a number of people have said this so far, nothing of substance changed. Nobody undermined the factual findings of the special counsel's team. Please don't forget that. Well, and it's so important, you know, and and I think it's shallow analysis, I'm guilty of it, to to hone uh, hone in on the performance aspects. But there were facts underscored, and they were things that Democrats were eager to underscore. Robert Mueller did talk about all the lies. We talk about it at Mm -hmm. 4 o'clock all the time. Why did so many people tell so many lies about the exact same thing? Robert Mueller did acknowledge today that the lies may have hindered his investigation. Um, We haven't talked about the president's refusal to do an interview for a very long time. Robert Mueller spoke to that. Robert Mueller made clear that he was, his hands were tied by the OLC opinion, undermining the president's total exoneration message. He wasn't exonerated because he was never going to be charged with the crime to begin with. That's right. And I think those points about the lack of cooperation from the president and others um, is crucial, right? So let's not forget that. Thank you for bringing that up. The other point I think I would make, Nicole, um, there are questions that Bob Mueller couldn't answer, and Mm -hmm. he didn't. I think Frank Figluzzi's right. Others might have taken a different approach and been more aggressive in their defense of the FBI and of the investigation. But in the end, again, nothing changed. So, you know, this, this may sound weird. I wasn't actually rooting for one side or the other. Mm-hmm. I don't really care if the Democrats win or the Republicans right. win. That's of no interest to me. What I was looking for and didn't quite get was a clear, expo- a clear explanation of the stuff I had read. I, I 
think though that what people wanted was an explanation of why it was confusing and I think it remains confusing. Mm -hmm. So in terms of explaining why, the, and, and this is a criticism that comes from the right and the left, frankly. I mean, I heard this this week from a Justice mm -hmm. Department source. It has still not been adequately explained in their view why there wasn't a declination on obstruction. And I'm not sure that was too much clearer to the, to the general public. Yeah, I think I can explain it. Uh, so there is existing policy that says you can't charge a sitting president. Mueller's thinking, and I believe it to be accurate, is that if you can't charge a sitting president, then you can't recommend charging a sitting president. That's unfair, because that sitting president can't defend himself. And so you can adduce the facts. You can, in fact, the special counsel regulations make it clear you can investigate a sitting president. You just can't charge, and therefore you can't recommend it either. But if you read volume two, and here I am again talking about why we ought to read volume two, you can see that the fact pattern is extraordinarily well established. It didn't come across today. I agree with you. It, it will remain confusing. People in their hardened bunkers will stay in their hardened bunkers, left or right. Uh, this hearing today did not help illuminate the issue. Hey there, I'm Chris Hayes from MSNBC. Thanks for watching MSNBC on YouTube. If you want to keep up to date with the videos we're putting out, you can click subscribe. Screw you. We don't want to do that. But uh, the Mueller report, still no one, no one knows what's happening. No one knows what happened. Great. So I guess I got to read it. I don't want to read it. I mean, who knows? I have no idea. So their the whole thing's on there, which is great. And so now we know that nothing has changed. Uh, they also call it a disaster for Democrats. Huh. Um, Jim Jordan rips Mueller for passing on questions. Representative Radcliffe, you managed to violate the most sacred traditions of prosecutors. Yeah, I mean, did did he collude with? Did our president collude with Russia? Probably. Like, is he a lying liar? Lying liars and the lying lies they tell. Remember that book by Al Franken? Everybody remember? Anybody remember? It's, um... And the lying... Al Franken lying liars. Let's see what we got. Yes, he wrote a book years and years and years ago. Lies and the lying liars who tell them. A fair and balanced look at the right. And I, I, read, I read that, uh... He has, uh, you can get it on audiobook. I'm, I've always been a big fan of Al Franken, and I don't, something happened with, there was some sexual something that happened recently. I don't remember. Uh, well, let's, uh, this is interesting. Infamous debate between Bill O'Reilly and Al Franken. Hell yeah. Al Franken publicly shames Bill O'Reilly to his face. Oh, I love that. Shut up. Watch Bill O'Reilly lose it when Al Franken exposes him as a liar in 2003. But that's the thing. Do we care anymore? Do we care that anybody's lying? Do we... We know we've caught our president in you know, thousands of 10,000 lies now or something crazy. And, um, I, you know, I don't understand what, when do we, 
let's check this out. Ugh, they keep making errors occur. They're such poopies. Darn you. Darn you. some measure of hot water for claiming at different times that he's been in the midst of a uh, battle. Yeah. I, I think he said he was in like uh, he was in the middle of the Falklands. It's gone on and on. Fuck. I mean, there's a whole series of, yeah. of all sorts of uh, lies. But recall, the reason why I'm not terribly motivated by this story is because Bill O'Reilly's a joke. He's always been a joke. Uh, but it doesn't seem to impact his ratings or his employment. I mean, remember, this is a guy who not only had to pay off a producer who, by all accounts, it appears, was sexually harassing her with, with an imagination that involved the falafel and showers. Awesome. People also forget that Al Franken had called him out for claiming that he had won a Peabody Award, which is a very prestigious, in fact, multiple ones, or that his program, Entertainment Tonight, or whatever it was, Inside Edition, that's what it was, had won uh, multiple Peabody Awards. And Al Franken that no, that wasn't true. They won the far less prestigious one-time Polk Award. And this is a moment from when Al Franken and Bill O'Reilly were both invited to uh, book TV on C-SPAN. Now, this happened, oh, gosh, probably 10, 12 years ago, I would say. And at one point, O'Reilly loses it, starts yelling at Al to shut up. But uh, listen to what Al uh, says. It's pretty funny. And the visual is pretty funny, too. I mean, Al is just speaking in front of a podium. But then you see, like, O'Reilly just seething. I guess it was at a book expo or something. Uh, but this is uh, Al Franken promoting his uh, Lying Liars book. Here it is. Okay, and Bill, you know a little bit of this story. A couple years ago, I'm watching C-SPAN, which I love to watch. And I see Bill uh, promoting his book, No Spin Zone. And he's on, it's a... It's a four now, I can tell you right now, there's a shot of Al at the podium and Bill O'Reilly just sitting there with three of his, like, uh, chins just hanging out <laughs> over his shoulder because he's just sitting like, ugh. Can't believe this guy's gonna tell this story about what a liar I am in front of me and all these people. Format like this, actually, it's a moderator with, just with him, though. And he says, uh, the moderator says something like, um, uh, you hosted Inside Edition, which was a tabloid show. And Bill says, uh, tabloid show, we won two Peabody's. 
And the guy said, well, yeah, but it was, you got to admit, it was kind of a tabloid show. And he goes, um, Peabody's only the most uh, <laughs> prestigious award in journalism. We won two of them. The guy says, well, yeah, but it had kind of a tabloidy uh, format. And he says, uh, you want us to give our two Peabody's back? So I'm watching this, and I'm going like, Inside Edition never won a Peabody. So I Nexus Peabody and Inside Edition. And I do get three hits, and they're all Bill saying on his show uh, that, the, that Inside Edition had won the Peabody. Here's uh, one from August 30th. I anchored a program called Inside Edition, which has won a Peabody Award. There it won one. Uh, May 8th, it got you won two. Uh, well, all I've got to say is that Inside Edition has won, I believe, uh, you did qualify it, two Peabody Awards, the highest journalism award in the country. And then on May 19th, 2000, you go into this long thing about um, someone says it's uh, Neville, says, um, he says you hosted Inside Edition, you say correct, which is considered a tabloid show, you say by whom, by many people, does that mean, and even, and then you say we throw the Peabody Awards back, we won Peabody Awards. So I go to the Peabody website and look for... Let me remind you that Bill O'Reilly is... On stage. About 18 to 24 inches away yeah. from Al, sitting down, just sort of like staring... Balls on Al Franken. ...daggers into uh, Franken at this point. And every, everybody in the audience is sort of looking at this because this is pretty spectacular. You don't, you don't see this sort of... This type of sort of... Somebody just very slowly and entertainingly saying that you have zero credibility. You're a bald-faced liar to their face. Inside Edition Peabody Awards, and there aren't any. And I call the Peabody people, and I said, did you guys give Inside Edition a Peabody? And there was some laughter. And, uh, you know, because I'm thinking, what was it for, you know? How bare is too bare, or you know something on Madonna's first, you know the father of her first baby. Maybe you won it for, but they they say no, they've never won it. So I call uh, Bill, and you were really nice. You called me back, and uh, you said, uh, yeah, what is it, Al? And it was it was very warm. And um, I said I saw you on C-SPAN. You said you won Inside Edition won two Peabody's. Well, we did. I said, well, you really should talk to the Peabody people about that because they don't think you did. And he said, I'll call you back. <laughs> Calls me back five minutes. You remember this? He says, uh, uh, okay, it was a poke. I say, a poke? He said, yeah, it's very, it's uh, just as prestigious as the Peabody. <laughs> I said, so there are two most prestigious awards in journalism. He says, Al, it's very, very prestigious. I said, well, okay, don't you think it's odd that you got it wrong about a journalism award? <laughs> and he says, Al, if you want to go after me, go ahead. So All right. Well, there's more uh, for people to see. Keep it going. Well, I mean, this thing goes on for, for, Hours. for a long yeah. time. Uh, and Cut to the shut up part. It's pretty funny stuff. I, I quite enjoyed it. You uh, turn down. Yeah, turn that down a little bit. Um, so uh, that's just a, a. And look, you know. That, the loofah situation uh, with the falafel that Bill O'Reilly... Well, it goes on and on. Uh, the, the best part of the end of that is he starts yelling, shut up, shut up! Uh, Bill O'Reilly freaks out. Uh, I only played that just to be like, you know, 
Lying Liars and the Lying Lies They Tell Lying Liars. It's a great book. Um, it was written in the early thousands. It still exists. You can go out and get it. And it was Al Franken talking about the lies <laughs> and the lying liars. And one of them he exposes Bill O'Reilly, but also um, political figures. And and we should know this. We've we are liars. We've we lied to the Native Americans so many times. Um, took the land, gave it back, sent them off. They were living in harmony with the world that we just took over like locusts. Just because we're like, we deserve it. Privilege. It's what Americans deserve. We decided it. Boom. Well, then let's come together again, everybody, and say, we deserve it. We decide it. We deserve it. 15 hour, $15 an hour minimum wage. Healthcare for everybody. I mean, everybody, the work, the work, I mean, labor is everything, Marxist friends. Labor is everything. And women own your labor and we should legalize prostitution like immediately because there are women already doing this labor, but they're doing it illegally and it's not safe. And I say, let, let all labor be labor war on drugs war on drugs sure i do everything else on drugs anyway it's my new favorite joke okay thank you guys so much for being a part of the AltaCast today latoya i miss you forever um she'll be back hopefully next week and in subsequent weeks i'm actually not going to be here for five weeks i believe next week i'm doing i'm in a film we're filming so i'm going to be doing that playing a comedian's mother Ugh, i'm getting so old but technically i could be his mother absolutely and uh i'm gonna be filming that next week and then the following wednesday i'll be in amsterdam and then the wednesday after that i'll be in athens and then the wednesday after that i'll be in uh the greek islands and then the wednesday after that i'll still be in the greek islands i'll probably be in athens again so yay uh i get to we're going to visit our talented artist buddy nikos kihem in greece hey if you want to buy any of his beautiful artwork it's here at the station come on by please come to the mutiny comedy clubhouse every friday at eight o'clock and support the station and listen to people it's we're so funny i was telling so many jokes last night people were laughing at me i was being funny all right. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. 
From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hello there, my friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as movies over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for <laughs> is in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen Summer Cottage on the Mountain Ridge for the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby.
Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz latin gospel hip-hop and traditional folk ballads great stuff check it out labor and love is every saturday 10 a.m to 12 p.m serve somebody subliminal sf visual and auditory mind control brings you the best coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over san francisco and the bay area Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. If you're looking for some delicious late night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside you can find counter offer and my offering you amazing late night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamylicious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They got them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Blender's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son! Welcome, Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5, Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, Punk Rock and Schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Bender's is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Bender's Bar and Grill. Did 
This is Tutor Matters with Mutiny Radio. Big up to the number one station, the ruling nation. Give it to me every time. Ah! Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! And welcoming open mic, where comedians can get substantial mic time for the mere price of a spot of tea and crumpets.